This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 29th, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. Following the Supreme Court oral argument over the so-called net choice cases, how might the outcome shape the future of speech on the Internet? I sat down with Cato's Jennifer Huddleston, Tommy Berry, and David and Sarah to learn where the court might be leaning and why many arguments about treating Internet platforms as so-called common carriers fall flat. There was a lot going on in the oral argument over what have come to be known simply as the net choice cases, as you noted in your recent event that I would will refer listeners to if they want to dig deep into these cases. Jennifer, you said there are a lot of cases we could call the net choice cases, but these two are currently before the Supreme Court. Before we get into the why, Tommy, if you don't mind, could you just characterize the questions that the court is dealing with? Sure. So the question presented at the most basic level is, do these two laws, one passed by the Florida legislature and one passed by the Texas legislature, do they violate the First Amendment rights of social media websites? Both of these laws have some differences, but the main similarity is they both restrict the freedom of social media sites to moderate the content that appears on their websites, the content that people upload and that traditionally they have had various rules, both through human and algorithmic moderation to limit things that they want to set as out of bounds. And Texas, for example, says you have to be viewpoint neutral with those rules, so it wouldn't allow a state to distinguish between even pro- or anti-terrorist speech. Florida also has a lot of, of strange rules, including you have to allow anything by a political candidate, no matter what they're saying. And the question is, does that violate the website's First Amendment editorial freedom? If I can add something to what Tommy said, while we often hear these cases discussed in the context of social media, one thing that certainly came up in oral arguments is particularly as it relates to the Florida law, these are broader than what you might traditionally think of as social media. These are impacting a lot of different forms of user-generated content. So we're not just talking about Facebook, and Twitter, we're also talking about sites like Etsy, or as was discussed in the oral arguments, even Uber could come up in some of these laws. And to say nothing of websites that are ostensibly uh, news websites that have a comments section. So, Jen, if if you don't mind, there were a lot of sort of strange and, uh, at least from a libertarian perspective, a First Amendment absolutist perspective, sort of some troubling lines of discussion at oral argument. Would you mind just give me one? Like any oral arguments, there were good and there were bad. There was a lot of discussion of the common carrier argument, but I think one of the more concerning things that we saw was this debate over, you know, whether or not private platforms could quote-unquote censor. And unfortunately, we we saw this really become a bit of a, a hot-button issue at points during oral arguments that the idea that these private platforms somehow had gotten so big that it was the same as the government doing things. But on the bright side, I think one of the good things that came out of oral argument is that we did see some of the justices really pushing back and really understanding the basic premise of the First Amendment as it relates to these laws. At one point, there was a question asked along the lines of, well, could we do this to a movie theater or a newspaper or 
a book publisher, and it kind of really put into terms that I think the average individual can understand what these laws are doing. You are asking a private business to carry certain words. One of the other things that we saw that was really good was that we saw the justices really grappling with how broad these laws were. I've joked with a couple of friends. I now want to know what Justices Sotomayor and Kagan are buying on Etsy because they definitely understood that platform and how something like these laws could impact a platform like that. The average user may not think of Etsy as political or may not think of Etsy as user-generated content, but there are a lot of different viewpoints that can get expressed, both in terms of the listings that are done on Etsy, you know, for various merchandise that may be supporting a, a certain political viewpoint or a certain belief, or even, you know, for things that are pro-Taylor Swift or, or pro-your-favorite-fandom or anti-your-least-favorite-football-player you know, could be considered a viewpoint at times under the Texas law. Then you get into things like reviews, and this very quickly becomes something that's not typically talked about in these contexts, but it's highly relevant. David, Justice Kagan had some pretty sharp questions for the Solicitor General of Texas relating to the kinds of speech, it really goes to the core of this notion of viewpoint neutrality. That is, if you allow pro-something speech, you must also allow anti-something speech. What was the final result of that? Yeah, and it wasn't just uh, Justice Kagan. You saw Justice Kavanaugh doing the same thing. Multiple justices questioning the Attorney General of Texas about how is it possible to remove only certain types of content and not fall afoul of this law? The greatest example, I think, was we mentioned terrorism before, um, where Justice Kavanaugh asked a very basic question of like, well, how about terrorism content here? Can the platforms remove terrorism content? And they tried to say yes, but then he's like, oh, well, most of this is illegal. And it was like, well, wait. A lot of terrorism content isn't per se illegal. It could just say nice things about terrorist groups. It could be praising terrorist groups. It could be glorifying violent acts. Those aren't per se illegal. Can any platform take that down? Or because they've allowed, you know, let's say anti-terrorism content, do they therefore have to leave up the pro-terrorism content? The attorney general from Texas definitely struggled with that question and sort of said, oh, well, of course they can remove categories of speech. Like they can remove terrorism speech. But that begs the question, what is terrorism speech? What viewpoints are considered terrorism and which viewpoints aren't? So the justices sort of let them just go and explain that one. And to be honest, they didn't have a good answer. And it became very clear, I think, to anyone watching that it was turning into a word salad that was conflicting. And I think the justices saw through that. Tommy, you were present for oral argument. And these are two state laws that apparently, at least from, I think, uh, your perspectives and mine, apparently tries to limit the scope of the First Amendment. You mentioned that beforehand, after the argument, that Justice Jackson had raised some concerns about whether they knew enough about the laws themselves to make a judgment about whether certain applications of those laws might be constitutional. How relevant is that to how the justices ought to weigh in on this case? I mean, to me, I would err on the side of we need to throw this whole law out because there are applications that violate the First Amendment. 
This was the most unexpected aspect of the argument. It was really a shift from what everyone had assumed the justices would focus on and what both parties had focused on in the lower courts. Both parties had sort of operated under the assumption that the First Amendment question is going to be the same for any and every website these laws apply to, that either one answer is that this infringes editorial freedom and you have freedom to decide what speech appears on your site, in which case it's always going to be a violation, or if there are common carriers, it's never going to be. What Justice Jackson raised is what about things like direct messages, Twitter DMs or Facebook Messenger? What about email services like Gmail? The difference between those is that they don't have a public feed that anyone can go and look at. And so they're a little bit different from the newspaper analogy that I think is so powerful when you think about editorial freedom. And then you get into kind of several wonky questions of legal procedure. If Florida failed to defend their law on that basis in the lower courts, can you really blame net choice for not rebutting an argument that wasn't made? We have an adversarial legal system, not a system like some European countries where courts come up with arguments to defend a law on their own. And so I think Paul Clement, arguing for net choice, justifiably said, you can't blame us for not rebutting an argument that Florida has never made until basically until two days ago. How do you feel that this is going to go down? You know, I think one of you made the argument that there was at least some indication from Justices Alito and Thomas that these laws aren't all that bad. So I think on that regard, there were some interesting things, as Tommy alluded to, that were perhaps unexpected in oral arguments that weren't necessarily focusing on the issues we'd seen brought up in the briefing. I, I highly commend Tommy's excellent brief digging into the question of Pruneyard, which was certainly brought up during oral arguments. But we saw a lot more discussion from Justice Gorsuch around Section 230 when the briefings in this case had been very focused on the First Amendment. While there certainly is a discussion to be had around preemption in Section 230 and whether the preemption in Section 230 automatically makes these kind of state laws a no-go, that wasn't anticipated to be part of the oral arguments, really, given the questions presented in this case. The other, as Tommy alluded to, was that there was a lot more attention paid on how these challenges were brought. Some of the justices seeming to perhaps not want to reach the underlying First Amendment question instead focusing on should these laws have been allowed to go into effect and be brought as an as-applied challenge in which case, you know, what you could see is the law is going to affect and you end up with another set of litigation after the fact, as well as with the potential damage that is done in that interim while it's working its way through the court system. Paul Clement, in his arguments for net choice, pointed out, particularly with the Florida law, there's a significant private enforcement risk that really means that any time in that interim when we're looking at an as-applied challenge, could be incredibly costly. And in the case of the Florida law, we're not only talking about very large platforms, we're talking about a whole range of smaller platforms and services as well. I would simply note that some of the challenges that were raised, and I think that injustices were asking questions, the discussion did, I think, elucidate several good arguments that there might hopefully be a good outcome, whether it will be a broad, sweeping decision, not sure. But there were quips like by Justice Kavanaugh responding to Justice Alito, um, talking about how, you know, it's censorship by the government, which we're worried about with the First Amendment. And that by the government is sort of the key element of the First Amendment. And 
similarly, on the related note, Clement was in responding to Justice Barrett talking about like, well, this isn't censorship. If companies aren't allowed to um, moderate as they wish, can a Catholic website remove a quote unquote notorious Protestant from their Catholic only platform? It got a great laugh from the court, but it really pinpointed the fact that this isn't censorship. This is freedom of expression. This is freedom of association. Like these are core First Amendment principles that we're dealing with here in these cases. And those kind of remarks gave me hope that at least some of the justices and even the ones that were maybe looking for the narrow decision, they were getting this idea that allowing these laws to stand will do damage, significant damage to the rights of these companies to to moderate as they wish, and then thus the ability for Americans to choose platforms that they want and serve them best, not to mention the fact that the risk of what happens when this stands and all sorts of other laws are allowed to be put on the books that try to force companies to moderate from different directions. So I'm hopeful that the justices saw at least there were significant harms in allowing, you know, wide-scale allowance of these laws. There are lots of options on the table for the court. Do you have either a prediction or a strong preference for precisely how the Supreme Court resolves this case? My hope would be that they just simply affirm the 11th Circuit, affirm the preliminary injunction. As Paul Clement said, that's not the end of the case. You go back down and potentially you have more fact-finding about what it all applies to. There is a procedure that is rarely but sometimes taken by federal courts where you can certify a question to the state's highest court. And I think that's maybe a wild card that could be in play. It was suggested by the United States Solicitor General as an option if they're really concerned about this direct message Gmail issue, you can ask the Florida Supreme Court, hey, can you interpret, does it apply to these or not, so we can have more information. That would be a bit of short-term letdown, but it might make the justices more comfortable in the long run of knowing what they're deciding. I think it will also be interesting to look back at these cases in about another month with an upcoming case in Murthy v. Missouri that has to do with government jawboning or kind of the pressure that it is believe that government agencies put on certain platforms to undertake certain actions, how that context and how the conversation and questions we may see about the First Amendment rights of platforms, particularly given that we did see some very strong points made, particularly by Justice Kavanaugh, about how censorship is only by the government. What we're concerned about when it comes to the First Amendment is government intervention in speech. So how perhaps those questions may provide even further insight into what this court is looking about as it relates to First Amendment jurisprudence in the context of online content moderation more generally. Yeah, I think you could actually see the U.S. Solicitor General was trying to get ahead of that because the U.S. government brought that up in argumentation as one of their notes. I do think that that will be the next interesting development because, as pointed out, there are some justices that seem to think that these laws that are laws that formally say you can't moderate in one shape or another. And then on the other hand, jawboning is this informal coercive pressure sort of behind the scenes. But they're two sides of the same coin. You can't formally require companies to do something that goes against their expressive beliefs, but you also can't informally pressure them to do so either. So it will be very interesting to see the tack that the court takes then on that, especially from justices like Alito and Thomas, which will certainly be very skeptical, I suspect will be very skeptical toward you know whether or not it was appropriate for the government to be pressuring companies to remove speech that was disfavored. 
Jennifer Huddleston, Tommy Berry, and David and Sarah are scholars at the Cato Institute. We spoke earlier today. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.